This is Heat Stories about hot spices, their history, and the stories around them. Books, Canadian, what was it? Explorer, adventurer, writer, mountaineer, living on in Hawaii now. I got in touch with you. Maybe let's go there immediately because of your travels on the ancient T-Horse Road. And yeah, I got in touch already because I have been looking at the chili and there is somehow the typical case along the T-Horse Road of like, you can find the chili there, but you don't really find anything about it because it's so obviously there that it becomes hidden. That's how I first got in touch to ask you like, so was there chili anywhere? This is, because of all of that, going to be a different kind of heat story. We might end up talking more about hot tea than about uh, hot spices, but let's see where it leads us. So, welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you were just and I, rem- I, rem- I remember the first communication from you, and I remember thinking someone was immediately and very concisely explaining what they were doing and the story of a spice of a pepper coming into Asia, the way you were talking about it, it felt an immediate symmetry to some of the world of tea that I've dealt with on the, on the trade routes. That being that there's an oral narrative an oral history of something that goes far beyond what's recorded history. And so your first email was a little bit of a hook in that way, because there seemed, I mean, here you have Chile, the heat stories, as you call them, and I like that. And then tea is one of the ancient world's coolants. It's a pacifier. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a blood, a heart, a nervous system moderator. And I think, I think there's some... I think there's a beautiful little relationship there, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, true. There might be. Huh. I had actually not thought of that, I must say. But yeah, of course, there's something to be said for that relationship. Yes. Yeah, no, I just thought about it as you were talking. That's how these things happen. These little inspirational bubbles, they come. Yeah, they come in the interaction. So very much. What what got you onto the tea horse road? How did you even find out about it? I have been in mountains all my life as a young boy in Switzerland. Um, the mountains have been a fixture in my psychology, in my my need, uh, the need for the body to get into them. Um. Tea has also been a part of my life uh, since I was a boy. My father had tea since I can remember. And I went on an ill-fated expedition to Yunnan years and years ago. The expedition was called off because of a blizzard. <laughs> but a local Tibetan pointed, we were drinking tea at that point, he pointed at a mountain range. And, of course, I expected him to say something romantic and beautiful about the the landscape, and and he says to me, well, that's the route that I came from India back to Yunnan from. And by the way, that's also, that's also in Tibetan, the word is Jalam. 
uh, Jalama's uh, wide road, um, or the Chamagudao, as we know, or the Chamadao, the T-horse road. And so with that one sort of sentence and that one pointed finger into this, this horizon, I thought to myself, at that moment, it was one of those unique and quite rare moments where everything comes together. And I thought, well, physically, I want to do the route. But this is a different story than the schooners bringing tea from Fujian province from the southeast to Europe. This is a much different. These are the overland caravan routes where tea was traveling for six months and fermenting on these journeys and turning into something horrific. Um, and this is where this is where tea was still revered as a commodity and a currency with 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 such passion and such still to this day when you know this is going on 15 15 years ago even then the passion that tea was spoken about uh, the reverence that it was held this stirred my own blood and it stirred a desire to seek the seek the root out but also um you know that that beautiful underrated element of any story is the teller the people who still remember the tales sometimes the facts are there sometimes the facts are wrong but so to seek out these last memory banks of the route um as we traveled and so it was about tea but i think it was maybe about this physical journey and 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 the underside of tea's export rather mm -hmm. than just the Euros, the Eurocentric view of tea being shipped. This was tea being mm -hmm. transported from Asia to other parts of Asia as a tribute, as a currency, as a panacea, as a medicine. And, you know, this, I guess this narrative of tea with the human relationship and the geographic relationship is... is something that held me and it and it still holds me mm -hmm. it's i mean of course having a fascination with mountains it just simply fits there already i want to say that i find it so fascinating myself because it's like we have this in so many things like with trade routes we have this idea of european exploration and the sea routes there we have this fascination maybe or at least some sort of knowledge about the silk road but the himalayas usually seem just like this barrier and we don't expect any interaction there and then you look at things like the t-horse road and it's like wait a second so actually across the himalayas there were links like between Southeast Asia, South Asia, India, between Afghanistan and Iran, probably across the Himalayas to Yunnan, to the north of China with that. Like, oh, what? <laughs> the barrier is suddenly a link. And, you know, you just made reference to it, but this T-horse road, I mean, the, the from a historical perspective, and again, the West, Western historians haven't really looked at it but when you think about a trade route that was unendingly supplying peacefully unending no war no pestilence nothing cut the trade of tea into some of the most inaccessible parts on the planet 
for 1,300 years, over 1,000 years of trade, not just tea. But you made reference to this idea of borders. And what's fascinating about, I guess, most of the world's great trade routes is that borders were sort of modern concepts. Um, Mm -hmm. They were legal and bureaucratic delineation points. On these trade routes, you had a different concept of land and what belonged to whom because borders were kind of almost like figments of the imagination. They were places to levy attacks. But in the old days of trade, and I mean not so old because the trade route was going to the 1950s, what's Mm -hmm. interesting is the human relationship, the human collaborations were so vital in the trade of not only tea, but all the currencies of resin, of uh, leather, copper, medicinals coming out of the Himalayas. Mm. So you had this this gripping human tale of people needing people, relationships, honor codes. You made an agreement to pass through a segment of land that belonged to a feudal lord. You had to come to an agreement to mm-hmm. access his land, and he would agree to protect your caravans as they pass through. Um, and so I think as much as it's about commodities and currencies too, it's maybe about this age-old and very necessary human relationship that we used to need in times of trade when if you wanted salt or tea or chilies or some sort of exotic silk, you needed to facilitate that with the human relationship. And now Mm -hmm. I think we're able to separate human from human in the new consumer world very easily. There's not a need for an interaction. We're having an interaction right now Mm -hmm. face-to-face. And it's reassuring in a way, I think, when we do have human interactions, that commerce used to happen like this. It wasn't all negative. It was fronting up with people you'd never imagine meeting based on <laughs> based on a tangible currency of of food or medicine or or of course tea mm-hmm. it's interesting actually i mean looking at what people talk about in commerce thinking of china especially it's like uh Talk of social relations makes one think of, or certainly makes me think of Guanxi, which is usually seen as this sort of negative concept nowadays, a bit like nepotism or graft or something. But the point you're making is one which somehow oftentimes goes missing, that there's still an, even still now that we have much of a separation in trade, trade can be virtual and only about the exchange and you don't need to know your trading partner necessarily. And there is contracts and whatnot to make the people unnecessary. But somehow trade used to be about people wanting something which they couldn't get where they were. So wanting it from somewhere else, meaning wanting it from somebody else. So, yeah, you had to interact. Yes. And I think the merchant class, uh, they did a lot of damage and a lot of, um, I think, you know, they brought a lot of negatives in their pillaging for 
you know, untold amounts of, of commodities. But they also, the merchant class was interesting because they had to be interactive. They had to be open. They had to be malleable and adaptive to be able to access and deal with other cultures. And also from a point of view where they had to have those human characteristics, I think that makes an explorer someone much more than someone who just walks into the hills. But you have Mm -hmm. to explore the depths of your own psychology when you're in the middle of an ocean, you land on an island in this middle of the spice route and the islands had a plague and that spice is, is no longer there. So you have to you have to adapt. And I think if you look at history through those channels of trade, rather than just pillaging and rather than just military, and sometimes they're linked, but if you look at it through where did a spinach seed begin? <laughs> or if you look at it from a, the tea leaf um, or a salt, mm-hmm. if you follow the trail of these commodities, I think you get something pretty extraordinarily physical and and not just intellectual, but just to get salt from one end of the Himalaya to the other could take four or five months. And, you know, often those stories were never told. But they, mm-hmm. you know, on, on my annual trips back to the Himalaya to, to, to follow trade routes of what's left, a lot of these trade routes are still, to some degree, in a very small degree, I suppose, they're still functioning. You still see a little village on the other side of a mountain that it still doesn't have road access, electricity. You still have a little caravan twice a week, once a week, taking anything of value to them. That's an exciting world. That's a world that's visceral. <laughs> Yeah, that's of course where it, some things get a bit difficult when exoticism and tourism comes into play nowadays and at the same time, which is like, uh, yeah, an old visceral world, which is so different oftentimes from nowadays when we are so often moderated by social media and whatnot. Very much. And I mean, I don't think we'll ever stop traveling physically for that reason that it's and perhaps the food world's involved with that too we're still visceral beings um Mm -hmm. you know it's a hard thing to describe a moment when you realize that um should the world stop around you and all you've got is a bit of food a mule the wind and the gray matter and you have to figure out living again. Living that simple way, I think, is embedded in all of us. And I think that must have been part of trade. That must have been part of of taking these huge risks to transport food items and currencies across these huge spaces. Mm -hmm. One hopes. One hopes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, somehow it seems to be in us, often forgotten, but still. Okay, I do have to ask you, so the chili, how much was it a part of like the um, muleteers' rations or stuff like that? 
How much did you encounter? It's sporadic. Um, so I'm more familiar with the Yunnan to Tibet Tihorse Road. Uh, the Sichuan route, of course, we did, but I didn't encounter so much chili, to be honest, in Sichuan. And I, going into the memory banks, the muleteers would, a lot of the muleteers, not, not all of them, but they would talk of two important times of day. They would talk about uh, Tsapo. Tsapo was their tea break. Mm -hmm. And Tapo, they would begin their trading days at four or five in the morning. They would hit something called a gonkar, uh, a camp, mm -hmm. mid-morning, mid and they would have a tea break. And then they would have another tea break when they set up camp, which was usually mid-afternoon. Mm -hmm. So they would have that second tea break. So that those tea breaks were vital. Some of them would also talk about um, the need for tsa or jagu. Mm -hmm. And jagu in Tibetan means, at least in one dialect, um, spice, hot spice. Uh -huh. And I remember once wondering, because I didn't know the Tibetans loved chili, and, mm -hmm. and my impression was that this is, must have been an import from some other part from i know in bhutan they've got a lot of chilies growing there and i knew of course in 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 the middle kingdom in china they had it so i asked the 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 two muleteers uh, that i traveled with i said so what is this this need for jagu because they they would say jagu mombujiri jagu mombujiri is lots of spice so I said, okay, so what is this love of it? And they said, well, I don't, we don't know the history of it, but my father and my father's father, we like the spice because it wakes up, they said, they wakes up the blood. <laughs> so for them, tea and spice had a similar physiological effect. Uh, mm -hmm. The tea they liked strong. The tea they described as a fuel. The spice was also meant as a type of fuel and obviously to heat the body. The, it makes sense up in these, in these, in these altitudes. Mm -hmm. But the two things that they spoke about the most was jia, which is tea, mombujire, lots of tea, and tsa, or jagu, mombujire. So lots of tea, lots of spice. And both of these elements were looked at as a fuel. Um, and I don't think I know too many muleteers in Yunnan that I encountered from the Han, the, the Yi people, the Hani people, the Bulan, the Wa, the Tibetans. <laughs> all of these people that I encountered, all these ethnic groups along the Tihorse Road, all had a relationship with some sort of spice. And it wasn't, it wasn't the idea that you annihilate a dish with too much heat. <laughs> it, it was... Every group, every area you went had a slightly different strength ratio and subtlety. But again, um, as an observer and not a huge partaker of chilies, um, yeah, I, I can say that there's certain areas I prefer. Yunnan has beautiful, the be for me, Yunnan has the beautiful uh, soft spot for chilies. They've got the sour fermented heat um that i'm more familiar with uh, but the heat never was 
destructive. It was mm-hmm. always a component. But I never saw Chili's, uh, I never saw it used as a commodity or traded for. Um, so in that, in that regard, I knew that people enjoyed it, but I, I never saw it being used as a commodity or a currency. Yeah, that that seems to be typical of the Chile, though. And one of the things which makes it so difficult to look into its history, that <clears throat> it it brought spiciness, like the black pepper, for example. But where black pepper needs its very peculiar conditions to grow, the Chile is so adaptable. It's actually very human in that. It's like in all different places, in all different ways, it can exist, it can grow. And for the same reason, though, it becomes so hidden because it's like such a natural part of the landscape in parts even that it's like, yeah, it just is there. It just gets used the way it gets used, but it does not get traded because it's just, yeah, somebody had it, somebody dropped some seeds somewhere or birds dropped some seeds somewhere if it's a small enough kind. But it's not anything that anybody mentions because it's just, yeah, part of the saddlebag or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, one of, to take this, what we're discussing back to the origin of teas, if we're to look at Sichuan Bana, the south of Yunnan, mm-hmm. you know, one of, the, one of the families that I go and source from every year, um, they basically have this saying about spice or heat. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if the food doesn't have spice, if it doesn't have <laughs> spice, it has no meaning to the mouth. And, 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 you know, it's one of those beautiful little, I don't know, mantras of, of eating in, in not just China, but it is interesting that it is so easily transportable. I mean, you can crush dried chilies, put it in a satchel, and, and yet I don't, I've never seen it like salt or tea or resin. I've never seen it hauled over mountains Mm-hmm. Um, and yet so much of the sub-Himalayas, so much of China, so much of the Middle East deals with soft layers, various layers of spice and strength. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's a question. It's, yeah. A- and you get to a point again, which, I'm, which got me to China and to the Chile, because it's like we have this idea typically of Chile being about, as you put it, annihilating a dish, annihilating taste buds. And in most places where the Chile has a tradition, and even talking of that is a bit funny since it only spread after Columbus. So it's been spreading only for the last like 500 years talking about authentic foods and that sort of thing. But where it has a tradition, at least of a few hundred years, it's typically not at extreme levels of heat, certainly in Asia, in much of it. My grandmother, the Hungarian, um, she was interesting. She used paprika, paprikosa, um, in various heat strengths. Mm-hmm. And she could handle she could handle a lot of heat, but in Hungary, paprikosa is not simply one kind of mm-hmm. 
there's many different layers of aromatics smoked some of it's smoked mm-hmm. and i can remember as a as a boy friends of mine coming over and eating the food and w- one of the guys coming over said oh there's a, there's so much hot pepper in the dishes and she was mm-hmm. making something called uh, uh bablavash and so he was saying well i don't think i'm going to eat any any food my grandmother just went mm, let's see and so when we ate he ate and ate and ate and it's it goes back to what you said and it also goes back to maybe this misinterpretation of spice um and strength that mm-hmm. there are so many different subtle layers in in a, I mean, you're the one that deals with chili and is obsessed with chili, so you can speak to this. In tea, I can tell you there's so many different flavor nodules mm-hmm. that are hit in the palate when you sip different teas, and it doesn't have to be on either end of extreme. It's actually more of the activity is in the in-betweens, and it's, mm-hmm. I think, maybe in a perfect world if food is to go into... Um, a more authentic direction, maybe we give more credit to the subtle aspects mm-hmm. of spice rather than the obliterating strength or the, you know, the, the wildly extreme flavors because mm-hmm. to some degree they're quite maybe sexy for the modern culture, but I think the, the really soft things like umami in Japan, mm-hmm. there's a whole flavor concept that is all about this middle zone of subtleties and uh, kombu, you know, with their mm-hmm. kelp, with their teas that are high in chlorophyll. It's all about the middle zone. Um, yeah. Well, anything yeah. Else? I, I, uh, I've been wondering if this is like, a, I don't know personality work of mine that I want to look into this so much or what it is but I found it so fascinating when you look at Japanese tea certainly for example it's like uh, it's you find that it's well let me see if you agree but at least I find that it's really easy to find some extremes in taste but those are typically from the uh, not from the inexpensive and badly made things. And when you look at the well-made, more expensive, more special kinds, it oftentimes becomes difficult to appreciate them. Because, I mean, like, if you brew up a cup of Sencha, which is kind of cheap with hot water, water that maybe is too hot, you get an intense taste. You often enough get the taste where people would say, oh, I don't like green tea because it's too bitter. You easily get there, but when you get a Yokuro and you make it properly with rather cool water, it's oftentimes like there's not much flavor. There's a subtlety. And so for appreciation Mm. of it, you need to have the, it feels like either it's a good marketing story or you need to have experience with it to get to the subtleties. Very much. I I, know I agree. And I, so much of any flavor component or palate acceptability is a, is a, is a very subjective thing. And so who's dictating what a good chili should taste like? 
uh, you know, this this is a, a variable that will change with every person that that puts a morsel of of chili in. Tea is the same. Who's dictating how much umami should be in a good gyokuro that's made? Um, I do also think, you know, you're speaking about, you know, when you get to the higher end stuff, what what, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. What is the baseline from where we're beginning? So, but often in the very well-made wines, teas, it sometimes at the beginning seems like we're taking something onto the palate that maybe is not something in our memory palace of recognizable Mm -hmm. tastes, fragrances, flavors. But when it does hit, and I guess sometimes it's a moment or sometimes it's a gradual enveloping, but when it does hit, there, there can be that beautiful moment of realization that you're, you're taking something into the system on a level you've not really encountered before. And it's not an extreme explosion in the mouth it's not it's you've just evolved you've gone into a zone that's maybe more grays more subtle shades of of something and you realize that the maybe the genius isn't in the loud bright moments it's in sort of the it's in the in-betweens again Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah and, and honestly you you sit in tea tasting rooms, which I do a lot, and I've sat with farmers who are wearing flip-flops, their hands are stained with tea, the tea processing, they're calloused from doing the pan frying. They don't know the nomenclature, the classic tea nomenclature. They don't have the flavor wheel. They're not able to say that this tastes like a bit of an apricot hue of malt or peach. They don't know any of this. But you'll see them you'll see them sitting there drinking a cup of tea so quietly, not making a lot of noise. And they'll just they'll they'll come out with a state, and this happens often. Oh, that's that's a really clean tea. That's a really good tea. And I, I'll ask them, well, what do you, what does that mean to you? And the answer usually is something similar. It's usually, well, it's been well made. It's not been manipulated overly. They've kept the terroir, they've kept the flavor of the source. So to be able to to, to taste something and say, okay, this is clear to me that this is from that region because Mm -hmm. of a couple of simple things. This is quite magic to hear because the world of tea is exploding with all these descriptions of crap teas, teas that have been aged improperly, but have a beautiful spinny story to sell it. Mm-hmm. So they're developing a language to sell bad tea. When you have a good tea and you're sitting with people who are close to the source who make it, the discussion is usually quite brief. This is well-made and <laughs> this is reflective of the terroir or the soil or the, the, the environment, or this was withered incorrectly it's got a sourness sourness is the one flavor in a tea that you don't want it's mm-hmm. bitterness can be fine cool you know this idea of a bit of bitterness or stringency isn't necessarily a bad thing in a lot of asia in the west of course we villainized the word bitter um but 
it often is that the best quality, I'm not talking about the price, but the best quality mm -hmm. is often something very simply recognized with mm -hmm. not a lot of language. It's just, uh-huh, that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's a problem with the chili because there it's typically just about the shock effect. Not, yes, I can, I can imagine. Yeah, I mean, not actually, but it has a tradition. So again, there it's, yeah, okay, there are cases where people look at each other. My wife and I do that a lot, like uh, getting a bit of a sweat on the forehead and saying, okay, this might be a bit spicy, but mm, it's, it's not the main thing it is all about. It is about the right flavors. It was actually funny because I had a similar situation, maybe at least about like what you describe about teas with a, a Sichuan hot sauce, hot oil producer who is like all about the the flavor of that he remembers from his childhood. So I was like, yeah, okay, but then what is the flavor from childhood? What is the authentic flavor that you are looking for? And his answer was basically in that case, uh, well, if I make something that I find good and enough other people tell me, yes, this is right, then it's right. And I mean, isn't that a beautiful story that's history is inundated with these stories of when you had a shop on the street selling, you know, Michelin, you know, you're doing the noodle dish. And ultimately, everyone can have an opinion about which is the best noodle shop in, on that little street in that little village in the middle of Yunnan. But if people are returning to your noodle stand, that then becomes, I mean, popular, whether it's good uh, yeah. or not. I guess it's good because people are going there, but who, you know, that relationship between, well, what is good? Mm -hmm. And have we actually tasted? I mean, I've, I've done tastings with people with tea who've sipped tea for the first time, a good, strong, raw, unfermented pu'er, the way it should be tasted, in my opinion. Fresh, raw, pungent new, not an old, aged, mm -hmm. decrepit, humid, dusty-filled thing. And and people will sip it, this raw, powerful tea, and they'll think, no, I've never had anything like this in my life. And and some people don't like it. They say, oh, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's too strong, it's too... And then you realize that, well, what we've grown up with, what we've cultured our palates with what we've mm -hmm. bludgeoned our palates with has been someone else's version of a commodity or a currency or a flavor that they modulated and massaged into something and that then becomes a reality for successive generations mm -hmm. of, of palates and then when you go to the source of something whatever you go to the source of it could be the source of broccoli we were talking about tomatoes before this began when you go and eat something for the first time you're you've eaten these things but you go to the source and you have a tomato which blows your you think i can taste this this isn't bland at all you know this is part of what makes food exciting it's still mm -hmm. we go back to that word visceral this is part of what makes the world of the palate and food such a sensual, 
tangible thing that you can't we can't replace. Mm-hmm. And I think you know the the my world that I occupy of tea, where you never really know a lot. You, you're constantly learning, or you're unlearning. And your word world of chilies maybe touches on the magic of of this of this sort of food palette world. Mm-hmm. So let's close off a bit. I uh, want to ask you, what's next for you? What's happening? Um, I'm in the process as as not as I sit and speak to you, but um, I'm in the process of packing up. In five days, I am back in Nepal, mm-hmm. going uh, leading an expedition. Um, and just tying it into what we've been talking about, one of the first things I pack or decide on, and it's off, often not such a simple thing, is which teas to bring for <laughs> the trip. Mm-hmm. Because there are certain flavor profiles that I prefer being up in the mountains. And, of course, the guys, the the teams that I work with, they they make these really powerful uh, masala chai, spiced mm-hmm. garam, hot, spicy, sugary, gingery tea with only a little bit of actual tea in it. Mm-hmm. So that's good, but I also need the shots of my own uh, obsessive need, my own tea. So, mm-hmm. so the expedition, and after that, I go b- directly back to Yunnan. It's the off season for tea harvesting, and it's it's very quiet. But this mm-hmm. is one of the better times to go for me to source, because people are sane; they're mm-hmm. not worried about selling their 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 crazy spring harvest for crazy amounts of money and so i'll spend about a week sampling teas in ecstasy and <laughs> uh, so that's the next month of my life basically nice All right, yeah, on end of November, I'll be back in China as well, looking at the chili a bit more. Ah, you'll be back in Sichuan, will you? Yeah, uh, thinking and actually thinking of going to Yunnan. Well, if you do, I will try to provide you with, <laughs> I'll provide you with people's names. I don't know how much information about chilies they have, but they no, all no. eat chilies. Yeah, Chile is very funny because usually when you ask about it, people are like, now is the off season, there's no big fields around, so there's nothing. And actually, when I do what I do, like go over fields, go where um, anything is growing, it's like, here is Chile, there is Chile, everywhere is Chile. Yeah, and, and what I've noticed with Chile, and I'm not a huge Chile eater, is if you're not a Chile eater... Um, amidst a culture that is chili obsessed, which is most of Asia, you're looked mm. at as some sort of a just a barely acceptable friend. You haven't really qualified if you're not eating chili, and it and it happens every time. So now when I return, I have friends who defend me, and they'll say, "No, no, he's not a big chili eater." <laughs> you get a bit of a look, but. You know. 
Well, your your who was it? Grandma might be a bit disappointed as well. <laughs> Extremely, yes, <laughs> a failed Hungarian. What you don't do chili? What's the matter with you? Well, the palate, the palate obviously didn't get trans transferred down to me. Although I'm, I must laugh about this particularly hard because just this week my wife and I are going to go to Budapest and we are also going to go to a restaurant again, a very nice one like Jewish, Eastern European, Hungarian background. And you do know this, at least in the color, the paprika that they use. But it's not particularly spicy. It's really very relaxed. Yes, yes, and they've got a. There's they do beautiful smoked. I've had it in two places. They do beautiful smoked paprika in a place in Spain called Estremadura. Mm -hmm. It borders Portugal. They do some really nice stuff there. Yeah, and I've only seen that smoked those layers of smoked paprikas there in mm -hmm. Estremadura. And in parts of uh, Hungary, they do these, again, mm -hmm. these subtly different smoked strength paprika. Mm -hmm. And it's not about that wild, crazy, passionate strength. It's about uh, just a little bit of a hint of something. Yeah, exactly. Just flavor, aroma. Somehow it's a hard discussion, but like in the tea, like, yeah not so easy to get to because it is a bit more subtle than what everybody immediately looks at, but all the more interesting. Yeah. And if, I mean, if it doesn't work, there's always the other fluid that you can get into. And in Budapest, it's probably Palinka. But Palinka, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had that in China quite a bit. They are not as crazy about drinking anymore, but there was quite a bit of, no, come on, you can't only have the chili bite. You need to have another kind of bite as well. <laughs> yeah, the bite. The bite's never, no. It's when the bite's never finished that we get into trouble. Yeah, in one of those cases, I learned why in another part of China they were like, this uh, rice wine is only 36% proof, it's nothing. <laughs> okay, um, hmm. can I have some tea maybe? <laughs> this, is when we, this is when we stagger back to our, our abode, our home. Yeah. But make good friends and therefore good contacts for the next business maybe. Yeah, it's about, I guess it's about... Well, that's the beauty of the food world. Mm. You, you can't fake too many things in the food world when you're sitting there with someone. It's it's still about, I guess, the communion, the, the sharing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, quite literal oftentimes, certainly in China. All right. All right. I will stop the recording here. Thank you very much for this talk. That was quite fascinating. And I'm always running quite long. <laughs> well, you know, you can't stop these things. The momentum builds. And, yeah. you know, this is, I guess, this is part of the reason we're interested in tea, chili, food, drink, eat, is there's so many different worlds tied. Mm-hmm to a simple small pepper to tea. 
you can take it historical, you can take it intellectual, you can take, talk about commerce and trade, the building of empires on the backs of plant <laughs> matter, um, and about and relationships. And you can simply partake in it and enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, it could be just yeah. that quick and quick and easy. 